So I ended up sharing, you know, mom, dad, I'm, I um, have this thing called same-sex attraction. And, and for a lot of conservative religious folks, the word same-sex attraction is the preferred term to gay. And that's because it's seen as this more clinical description of an attribute rather than what a lot of conservative religious folks consider this political identity. And so so I chose to really identify more with this term same-sex attracted. So I said, mom, dad, I'm same-sex attracted. But in the same breath, I said, I am going to change this. And there are ways to do this. And here's all these books and here's all this evidence for why and how I can do this. That was Simon Fung. You may recognize his voice if you've listened to the podcast, Dear Alana, which soared to the top of podcast charts. In the podcast, he parallels his own story with that of Alana, a young woman who, like Simon, grappled with the impacts of conversion therapy and the complexities of religious faith through his battle with internalized shame and the societal pressures of masculinity Simon discusses the exhaustive pursuit of changing his sexual orientation, a decade-long journey that took him from the seminary to the depths of group therapy sessions. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a show about hope and possibility on the other side of pain. And today, about radical self-acceptance. Simon was born in Canada. He was raised in Toronto and embodies a rich cultural tapestry of influences as an American-Canadian-Chinese person. Most of his adult life was spent in New York City and the San Francisco Bay Area. Professionally, he has spent the last 15 years working in tech as a leader in user interface design. Have you ever used Google Maps? Then you've been touched by Simon's work. But as a child of immigrants coming of age in a country where he felt like he didn't fit in, it was a struggle. From the outside, It looked like he was doing well. He was a good student, got good grades, but on the inside, there was pain. Because as much as he tried to blend in and fly under the radar, it didn't work. And he was bullied. A lot. And I think I found a lot of, found a lot of refuge in the faith that I was raised in. I don't think religiously we were that devout as a family, but I was that kid who who took a lot of those things very seriously. And I think I found in it kind of a fascination and a real sense of like stability and and you know a real, yeah, kind of connection with God through it. At what point did you really start to lean in deeply to exploring your faith? I know it became a huge part of your life. And so yeah. so talk to me about the evolution of that. I remember one of my earliest memories was I was asked to draw a picture. I was probably, I don't know, seven or eight. 
Um, I was asked to draw a picture of what I wanted to be when I grew up. And the picture I drew was of, uh, was a picture of me and my grandmother standing in front of a church and me dressed up as a priest. And I don't know where that came from, but I think that there was that sort of early connection with the church that was yeah a big part of my sense of my mission or my calling. And I think that that was always sort of there in the background. It didn't, didn't have a real practical idea of how that would happen, but I, I would say that that was, that, yeah, that was certainly an idea that had crossed my mind. But it wasn't until late high school when Pope John Paul II came to Toronto to do kind of a giant youth festival that they hold every two to four years. That's called World Youth Days, where the Pope goes to a city and invites all of the young people of the world to join him at that city. And it's this kind of, you know, it's called the sort of Catholic Woodstock, right? Where there's like a bunch of young people and they're there's outdoor masses, there's events, there's festivals. It's just, a, it's a giant kind of Catholic festival is probably the best way of describing, almost like a music festival, right? But but not just music. And and I, I remember at that uh, event, just seeing this kind of global Catholicism, seeing all these people, all these young people from around the world, so joyful and kind of like really into their faith and being really moved by that. And it was, I think, there that I began to want to learn more about my religion. And so I actually started my Catholic Students Association at my university. I I befriended the pastor and the priest at my parish. And it was there that I began to take more seriously this discernment around whether or not I should become a priest. So at what point did you come to an understanding or awareness that you were gay? I'd say that I always felt a little bit different in, in different aspects. I felt like an outsider for reasons of culturally and racially. I felt like an outsider because I didn't fit your stereotypical boy mold, right? Like I was really into girls' things. I identified with the female characters in films. I was very much into Disney movies and cartoons. And 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 that was sort of not at the time very socially acceptable, you know, for boys uh, who were into hockey and sports and, and all, all these sorts of activities that I, for one, didn't really know how to play because we just didn't grow up with those sports in our family. And B was just really bad at. So I'd say there was a little bit of distance there already from the get that made me feel different. And I didn't have words for why I felt that, you know, or what, what it was that made me different, but I felt really ashamed about all of this. I felt really, just really isolated. And I'd say it wasn't until I was probably in seventh or eighth grade that I started to feel attracted to some of the boys in my class, right? I, I felt like I was drawn to them. I was interested in their physicality. I There was something that was really attractive to me about them. I didn't know, again, I didn't know what the words were for that, but, but that began to um, haunt me. And throughout high school, I'd say I stuffed all that down and really focused on getting good grades and, and really being this good kid to try to 
to try to just stave off what felt like were really isolating experiences or, or characteristics about myself that made me different that I just wanted to distract from. And, and, and the way to do that was to try to excel at what I was doing. And, and that was that was kind of in a way my coping mechanism. But that was the evolution of me starting to feel different. And, and it wasn't until late high school and, and early college that I began to dread the possibility that, you know, this word gay might actually apply to me. And and that really began a 10, 15 year quest to try to run, run away from all of that. What were you dreading? I think I was dreading the feeling or prospect of being different and being being marked by this thing that was going to exclude me from my family and from my community and from my friends. It's hard to articulate, but I'd say there was a deep shame in noticing these attractions and these feelings in myself. And shame is so, <laughs> it's such a dark and seemingly impenetrable kind of mass and, and thing that's sort of it's scary, right? It feels like you can die if you were to go near it. And, I, and again, I, I'd say it had to do with probably feeling excluded in some way. It had to do with, I'd say, a lot of the stereotypes that I had been exposed to around what gay people were like and what lives, lives of misery they were going to lead and what, you know, they were all going to die of AIDS. Like these were kinds of the ideas that I kind of passively grew up with. And um, yeah, I just didn't want any part of that. I wanted to be this good kid and it, and it felt antithetical to all of that. In spite of the shame Simon experienced about the possibility of being gay, this call to become a Catholic priest was deepening. The process for people who are considering this path includes meeting regularly with a spiritual director which is basically a priest who guides you and tries to help you discern your calling. Simon spent a year meeting regularly with a spiritual director, and the priest felt confident about pushing him to apply to seminary in the fall, which meant he would have to leave college. Simon felt conflicted. He knew on paper the Catholic Church was not supportive of gay men entering the seminary. Even though he also knew, in practice, many priests were gay, or same-sex attracted, as they might say. Still, he wanted to do things by the book and follow the rules. So he started researching online some of the things he could do to change his sexual orientation. This was in the early 2000s, and at the time, the solution that offered the most promise was conversion therapy. There were tons of materials and resources and groups out there formulating theories about why people were gay and how to change it. That felt like an amazing possibility and prospect for me. You know, I, I, from the literature, it sounded like it was going to be a, a long journey, and it was it was certainly not guaranteed, but it sounded like an out for me, and I really embraced that. And so when I sat down with my spiritual director, and he asked me to, if I would enter the seminary. I 
decided to come clean with him. And I said, hey, you know, Father, the, 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 there is something I need to tell you, which is that I am same-sex attracted. And his face kind of went stone cold. He took out a piece of paper and wrote down this website and gave it to me. And he said, you know, take this, come back when you're healed and never spoke with me again. But that website was, it was a website to the largest um, association of therapists who practice conversion therapy. And it was sort of a referral network to find therapists who would do that. And that began the process of me after graduating college, moving to New York City and beginning conversion therapy. And at what point did you open up to your parents and yeah. and come out and, and share your truth? So I opened up to my parents shortly before I graduated from college. So I was in my early 20s. And it was in the context of, so the people that I would come out to were actually priests, uh, especially in the context of confession. And, and one of the priests that I came out to, I ended up becoming really good friends with, and he was reassigned and to a different um, location and city. And so that ended up, you know, resulting in a departure. And I remember at the time he was probably one of a handful, if not, you know, the only immediate person in my life who knew my secret. And I was so devastated that I think my parents were just like, what is going on? Like, why are you so upset about this? And we knew, you know, we knew you, you were close, but what is happening here? And I think, I think when you carry the secret that is so heavy and it's so dark and shameful, it, it just feels like the only way to relieve some of that heaviness is to tell someone. And so I felt like, well, in spite of the fact that I'm not sure if my parents will take this well, I need to tell them. Otherwise, I don't think I can keep crying for the rest of my life. And so I ended up sharing, you know, mom, dad, I'm, I um, have this thing called same-sex attraction. And, and for a lot of conservative religious folks, the word same-sex attraction is the preferred term to gay. And that's because it's seen as this more clinical description of an attribute rather than what a lot of conservative religious folks consider this political identity. And so so I chose to really identify more with this term same-sex attracted. So I said, mom, dad, I'm same-sex attracted. But in the same breath, I said, I am going to change this. And there are ways to do this. And here's all these books. And here's all this evidence for why and how I can do this. And so, of course, they I think they were really surprised and really shocked. But they were and continue to always, you know, they always have been very supportive of me, really trusting of me and my my decisions. And so they said, oh, okay, um, you know, like, tell us more. And so I said, actually, there's this, there's this retreat, actually, this conference that's happening next weekend um, that's organized by this group called Exodus International, which at the time was the largest religious referral network for what's called ex-gay therapy or conversion therapy, but more on the like Christian ministry side of things. And and so I asked them, I said, mom, dad, will you come with me to this conference? And so they said, yes. And so they came with me to this conference where they really learned a lot about these theories and ideas about why people were gay and how it could be fixed and how family dynamics played into all of this. And 
and they bought all the books and went to the speakers and talks and it was really eye-opening for them but again it was something that i think i directed them to they followed my lead because they really trusted that i had done the research and i was so desperate to again offload this this terrible burden and so i really really put a lot of hope in in these programs so what was your experience at the retreat yeah, so at this retreat slash conference, the programming was centered around specific aspects of being gay or queer, right? So there were talks about the role of parents. There were talks about male homosexuality, female homosexuality. There were talks about various paths out of it from a religious perspective, from a psychological, secular perspective. And it all sounded so reasonable. So a lot of the basis of the theory behind conversion therapy is is based on the development of the thought of of Freud right who who really began positing that we are the way we are because of our parents and the way that ways in which our childhoods were shaped by our, our upbringings which seems really uncontroversial today but at the time was pretty groundbreaking and so his psychoanalytic approach and his theories around how people develop certain fixations and neuroses were really all about looking at our childhoods. And so some of Freud's contemporaries ended up taking his theories to apply that to homosexuality, where they were like, well, the reason why people are gay is because they they have some sort of failed attachment to the same-sex parent when they're younger. So as a boy, for example, it's because of my failed attachment to my father and for a, a, a girl or for a female, it's because of a failed attachment to their mother that results in this kind of deficit in um, masculine or feminine like affiliation. And so what the theory is that at puberty, this deficit um, becomes sexualized, right? And so what a young young man ends up experiences as same-sex attraction is really an attempt to seek out some of that father love and father energy that he may have been lacking as a child and so the only way to repair that is to you know work on some of those father wounds and a lot of other thinkers have expanded this theory to include not just father or mother wounds but also peer wounds and so it was because i was bullied by boys and that you know resulted in my lack of masculinity inside of me and i remember thinking oh my god like i have so much that I need to work on because it was true. There were aspects of these theories that I really related to and connected with. And I think this is really why conversion therapy still persists today is because it really draws from a lot of real life experiences that people have. And it sort of strings them together into a narrative that for a person who's desperate to change sounds really convincing and plausible. And that was the case for me. I felt like, oh my God, this really describes my upbringing. It really describes my childhood. It makes sense why I would be gay because of these things. And and so I think I felt a little bit, I guess I, I would say, grieved by the fact that I didn't really realize how damaged I was until I heard all of this put together in this grand theory. And so it was like, wow, I am extra damaged like this is this seems to have been such a huge problem and and you know disaster in my life that's resulted in my 
quote unquote, stunted development into heterosexuality. And so, oh my God, like there's so much I need to work on. So I really felt like I was a not lost cause, but close to it, right? Like I felt like I was this really, yeah, really damaged and unfortunate person. It's almost like a problem to be solved. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. I was a problem to be solved. I had a lot of problems that I didn't realize I had that now were identified as instrumental into making me this way. And there were things, thankfully, it sounded like from the talks, there were things that I could be doing to undo all of this. And so, of course, I'm going to want to undo it, right? It's like, if there's an undo button, I am going to click on that. And the undo button, you know, you would work so hard over the next decade in this pursuit. Yeah. And the specifics of that, you know, you you touched on your relationship with your father, Mm. uh, again, a problem to be solved, and a lot of focus on masculinity and what it means to be a man. And I know both of those would play key roles in the decade you spent in conversion therapy. So can you... Can you share both of those? Yeah. So a lot of the theory behind conversion therapy centers on addressing what are seen as childhood wounds, particularly with the same-sex parent, so my father in my case, as well as with your same-sex peers, so other other boys or, or males you know, in my peer group. And so the idea behind conversion therapy, which again, in its modern version, um, looks a lot less physically violent and, and coercive than it historically has been, right? Conversion therapy, which has been all these all these attempts, all these all these quote unquote solutions to try to solve the problem of homosexuality, have taken forms as violent as lobotomies or shock therapies and other aversion techniques, and those practices still exist. Maybe not lobotomies, but certainly aversion techniques but they're far less common than they used to be. And instead, the ways in which theorists have attempted to try to solve this quote-unquote problem of homosexuality is, is to looks a lot more like talk therapy. So I ended up finding a therapist in New York City when I moved there. And this was kind of the, the therapist that everybody in the know, you know, especially if they were a conservative Catholic, was referring their people to. And this was someone who offered counseling in these areas, especially around same-sex attraction um, and sexual identity. And so I gave him a call, told him about my life and my problems. And he said, absolutely, come on in. I began seeing him and we began to work on and identify some of these issues again, per the theory about what made me gay. And one of the big ones was my relationship with my father. And growing up, my dad was, my dad and I weren't close. I'd say we butted heads a lot and he and I were really different. And I think as a, I think for many reasons, there were a lot of things that made us not understand each other culturally, the the sort of generational differences. And a lot of that was really, a lot of it made it really hard for me to connect with my dad. And it got to a point where he said, why don't you bring your father in to do some sessions together? And of course, at this point, my parents had known that I was trying 
to change my orientation. And they they were supportive of it in the sense that they were like, okay, if if you think this is gonna work, like absolutely we support you. And so my father flew down to New York City and you know, we went to see my therapist together and and I was expecting this big breakthrough, right? I was expecting us to be able to really get into all the ways in which I was heard and and somehow talk through it and and gain perspective and maybe fight and have my my therapist moderate that. I don't know. There were all these images that I had in my head of like what was going to come out of this session. And instead, what ended up happening is my father listened to a lot of the memories and specific circumstances that I had been working on with my therapist that I'd identified as things that really hurt me or that I wanted to talk to him about. And he was just really, really open and and reflective about his role in all of this. He was really apologetic. He was very humble about all of his failings as a father. And there wasn't this kind of like fight that I was expecting. And and I think my therapist also didn't know what to do with that because he kind of was like, I really don't see a problem here. Like, I don't really see, I think your father's a really empathetic and loving person. Like, I, I don't know if there's something here that that we need to somehow like troubleshoot right now. And that should have maybe been the first clue that that there were there were some holes in this theory, but I I took that to be like, well, we're not looking hard enough. Like there's there's got to be more here and there's got to be more um to fix. There's got to be more to dig up from my past with my dad and and there's got to be more to work on. Simon's dad went back home. And Simon continued to seek out ways to identify and work on problems from his childhood. This led him to group therapy. He joined a group of same-sex attracted men, primarily from conservative religious backgrounds. There were Orthodox Jews, Mormons, and he was the lone Catholic. They met weekly to try and work out the peer wounds they experienced from childhood which according to the theory, were the things that caused them to be gay. The group therapy session kicked off with a weekend retreat, where they were introduced to some of the processes they would follow in order to identify and work through some of the traumas. We were asked to identify, for example, some examples where we felt disconnected from our male peers, and then there would be reenactments that in small groups people would do to to put us back into those situations with the idea that by having us relive those experiences, but with different language and tools to potentially push back against our bullies or reframe some of those experiences that, that those traumas could quote unquote be healed. And so for example, I remember mine was reenacting some of the bullying that I had experienced as a child. And so I had to give people some examples of some of the things people would be doing towards me, whether it be like whipping like tennis balls at my head or different kinds of things that were obviously distressing to a, to a kid. And people were then encouraged to, you know, in a safe way, recreate some of those scenarios. Um, And we would do that for different people in, in our small groups. And then we were encouraged with the facilitator to really 
relive that, but in a way we where we could do what we wish we had done at that time, like now, right? Like if if you were to be able to relive that that argument with that person, what would be the words you would use to say now to to fight back, right? And and so those were some of the exercises that we were doing with each other in order to connect with this part of our childhood that seemed to have been the reason why everything went wrong. Um, another example of an exercise that we did was to, well, and this is something that also happened when we were in our group therapy and sort of the follow-on therapy is a lot of the theory also centers around finding alternative ways to have male-on-male contact and touch that was non-sexual. And so the idea is that because there's this drive and this need for male affection that was missing, you know, as a gay person or same-sex attracted person now as an adult, a lot of what you are experiencing as attraction is really a craving for something that began as a non-sexual contact, right, with another another man. And in order to like, quote unquote, like sort of untwist that desire, the idea is to expose you to contact and male affection and touch that is non-sexual. And so I remember in our group therapy session, we were offered massage from another former client of the program who was a massage therapist. And, you know, we were encouraged to sign up for this and it was totally optional, but I signed up for it. And I, I um, remember going into the room and here was this beautiful man who um, offered to give me a massage. And, and I, at this point, had never had any sexual encounter with any man and, and, you know, in, my, in my life. And so I, this was the sort of the closest thing that that was. And so it was a very sexually charged experience for me. But he assured me that that was going to be okay and that the whole point of this was to sort of like experience those feelings in order to eventually move past them and in some ways disassociate from them so that you won't feel this sort of sexual energy, but it'll be a little bit more platonic and, and neutral. And so I was like, okay, cool. Let's let's see how this goes. And so I remember, yeah, getting this massage and it was a very sensual one, right? He would run my arms against his forearms and and it was a very uh I was I was very aroused, but was very again much like trying to go through the mental exercises that we were taught about, pushing past these initial feelings and identifying the root causes. And so as I as I'm feeling attracted to this man, I am identifying all the attributes that I feel like are are connected to some sort of trauma. And I was just kind of like doing this inventory in my head of like, okay, well, he's got really beautiful arms. And what does that have to do with something I experienced as a child and why is that attractive to me? And, you know, it's doing all of those mental gymnastics in order to do this quote unquote work um, as he was giving me a massage. And, and I learned later on that this massage was also for him, his like work by giving men massages. He was also trying to desexualize those experiences. And so it never got sexual, right? It never got to that point, but it was always on that cusp and it was, you know, at the end of the massage, he gave me a big kiss on the cheek and he's, you know, he sent me on my way. And it was, 
it was a little bit odd, but I think in my head, it, it all made sense. It was like, okay, I need to keep doing things like this in order to, again, move past or grow past or heal or in the ways that it ended up showing up in my life, like kind of disassociate from this part of me that was so, that I just wanted to get rid of. I mean, you telling this story started with my jaw dropping, and then I just had this fantasy that you would <laughs> grab hands and lock arms and run, <laughs> run off together. Yeah, that is a, that is <laughs> into the sunset in the first flight out. That's a great fantasy. I love that idea. Um. It sounds kind of ridiculous now, but but I, I took all of this so earnestly. I did it. And it was, I think, something that shows you how desperate I was. And I think it took many years before I I was able to see some of these situations from a different perspective, right? From the perspective of, well, a lot of people have bad relationships with their fathers or, you know, have some who doesn't have some memory of a way in which their parent hurt them or right? Like this is not something that is that unusual, but we don't necessarily conclusively create narratives around why people are the way they are, you know, like sort of across the board, right? And a lot of people who have some of these similar challenges with their fathers don't end up becoming gay. And what about them? And so, so there were certainly flaws in the theory, but I couldn't see that at the time. I couldn't Maybe it wasn't that I couldn't. I didn't want to see those other perspectives. Coming up, Simon starts to focus on his masculinity and tries out a variety of ways to become more masculine. You won't want to miss that. Stay close. We'll be right back. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every episode you hear, we donate $2,000 to our guest's favorite charity. In honor of today's episode, Simon chose the Alana Faith Chen Foundation. The Alana Faith Chen Foundation provides financial support to LGBTQ plus individuals who are at risk of suicide so that they can receive the mental health treatment and therapy they need on their path to healing. You can find out more about them on their website, alanafaithchen.org. And there was also a real focus on the ways in which physically, psychologically, mm-hmm. a man is to be masculine. And it sounds almost like um, masculine etiquette, masculine ways of being. Yeah. What was the language and the lesson and application there? Yeah, so a lot of the theory for for conversion therapy draws from both philosophical and I think a lot of religious traditions that that really see maleness and femaleness as this binary, right? That has a polarity to it as well as a complementarity to it. And so there, there's a lot of writing and a lot of literature across the board that really espouses 
the concept of masculinity and the concept of femininity and and the ways in which they are sort of these energies in the world that we fall into as you know people born male or female and in spite of there being more nuance to that vision of maleness and femaleness today with with our understanding of science i still think it's a really strong current undercurrent of a lot of traditions and and certainly that was the undergirding of the theory behind conversion therapy which really heavily leans on this concept of masculinity almost as like a almost as something that you could like physically have like in your body and soul like some more or less degree of right like almost like it's almost like something you could draw your blood and do a measurement and be like oh this person has has enough masculinity right or this person it's, it's it's almost seen as this the language is often used as you know oh you have a deficit of masculinity or you you are not identifying with and embracing your masculinity enough and so there's a certain amount of like measurement that's sort of implied in the ideas and theories behind conversion therapy and yeah a lot of the theory really goes into to teaching us like what is what does it mean to be a man it's a big topic right because I think it's an endless conversation to be had about what is masculinity is in what ways is it essential and what ways is it constructed, right? Like there's all these really interesting conversations to be had about masculinity and this this idea of, of the sexes, right? And I'd say like in the case of the kinds of therapy that I received, masculinity was presented as this aspect of me that I by virtue of having, you know, the chromosomes that I had, it was something that I I had in me, right? And for reasons of childhood bullying or lack of father and male identification, I ended up disassociating from and not developing and nurturing in myself and not having sort of this proper integrated relationship to masculinity. And so therefore, you know, I ended up seeking this out in other men, right? That was the theory. And so one of the ways they felt like we could reclaim some of that masculinity was to actually start, you know, faking it until you make it, right? The idea is that if I behave more stereotypically masculine and start talking and walking and doing the kinds of things that straight men or that men will, you know, do naturally, that will kind of kickstart and unblock the development of my masculinity. And so for example, they had us they had us, you know, and these were these are kind of again almost comical, but they had us in group therapy really observe the way we were holding our bodies and the ways in which we were walking and sitting and the ways in which we should be spreading our legs out wider versus, you know, crossing them and the ways in which our voices could be observed and honed in a way that made us sound a little bit more butch. You know, my my therapist in our one-on-one sessions talked a lot about the ways in which males interact. And he said, for example, that males, um, heterosexual males, bond by insulting each other. And so we need to practice making fun of each other in a way that, you know, kind of like roasting each other in order for you to be able to interact with other straight men and connect with them because that's going to be a really important part of your journey and healing is to be able to develop platonic 
safe relationships with other straight men. And so we would practice, like he would, he would hurl an insult at me and I, I'm like, just so bad at that. Like, I'm so bad at, I take it all so personally. So I was like, wait, what? Like, and, 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 you know, and he's like, no, you need to, you need to find something that you find annoying about me and, and hurl it back to me. And, and so those are some of the things we would do. And, and I was so bad at that, but, but I tried, right. Another thing that, that he had me do was to take up a sport. And the idea there being that because I had all these traumas around, you know, recess sports. I needed to relive some of those moments and find some sort of sport that I could build confidence around and learn how to inhabit my male body in a way that was that I'd missed out on because I hadn't been doing sports. And so I ended up choosing a martial art. I chose judo and it was kind of random. I think I just thought it was really cool the way it looked and it felt like not a team sport and there were things about it that I was, I, I admired from a distance about it. And so I ended up taking up judo for a year and a half. And, and I showed up at the dojo at this basement in New York city. And I would get thrown on the mat. Cause that was something you had to learn how to do is to land if you're thrown over and over again. But I was so bad at the sport that as everyone else was advancing, I was continuously paired up with the like 11 year old boy or the like middle-aged woman. Like that was, all, those were always my sparring partners. And I, I think they felt so sorry for me that they ended up giving me a yellow belt, like after like a year and a half, because they were just like, okay, like we admire the effort, but I was so bad at it. And I was, I would get so nervous going to it, like, because Again, it just felt like so much was at stake. It felt like if I didn't get good at this, if I didn't do this step of my quote unquote work, that I was waste, you know, I was losing time. I was not going to be able to become the person that I was supposed to be. And those were some of the things that I did. But I think that, you know, to your question, like the the bigger <laughs> the question around masculinity and and what it means. And I think in hindsight now, what's interesting is it does feel also culturally specific, right? Like like the ways in which men interact in America versus in Italy versus in Asia, like there's just so many different ways in which affection can be shown. And it's just interesting how, I don't know, like it felt like I was trying to mold myself into a model of masculinity that in some ways just didn't feel natural. Thinking about this decade in New York and really just your relentless pursuit to change who who you are and who you were and who you are authentically, well, being a young professional and having your day-to-day life, I just imagine how isolating and lonely what was your your mental and emotional landscape during this pursuit? I think emotionally and mentally, I was not in a good place. I was living in a way this double life where 
every Thursday I would be going off to this group therapy that nobody knew about that I was deathly afraid of anyone finding out about, you know, and I would be going to see my therapist as well. I remember I would get off the subway to my therapist's office in Midtown and just be looking over my shoulder to be like, does anyone see me? Like, does, you know, does anyone I know recognize me for being in this part of the city? And will they suspect I'm going to see this person? And if they know who this therapist is, will they suspect I'm going to see him because I'm gay? Like there were, there were all these like fears, obviously now in hindsight, quite irrational, but it shows you kind of the depth to which I was trying to hide my pursuit of this from everyone in my life because it it just felt like it was like the thing that was getting in the way of me living the life I was supposed to be living of me following my vocation whether to be a priest or to marry right like to be married to a woman like that that was all something that I was striving towards and so I was trying to in a way like it's like get this quick little procedure done hope nobody notices right and then show up a year from now with this new life, right? With this new face, right? And, and, and have everybody love me. And it felt like that was, that was the pattern that I was living. And so mentally I was, I was very isolated. I felt, I mean, the only people who knew about my secrets were my therapist and the other young men in my group. So yeah, so I, I, I was living this double life and was hiding this aspect of me from my closest friends. And mentally, I was not doing well. I I was in a place where I was in many ways feeling like I was performing for the world. I was living in the world as this persona that that had everything together, that was this young professional, that that was increasingly becoming performatively more masculine in the ways that I thought I was supposed to be. I was beginning to try to date women. I was going on dates and at the encouragement of my therapist, seeing if I could start to kindle some of these feelings towards the opposite sex as my same sex needs and wounds were quote unquote being healed. And I was just really going for it. I was really trying to become this this other version of myself. Another aspect of Simon trying to change himself was the natural influences of seeing his peers in the 20s hitting certain life milestones, starting careers, getting engaged, getting married, having their first child, especially in his religious friend group. Getting married and starting a family really young was not uncommon. Seeing these things made Simon feel like he was not moving forward in his life, like he was being left out or left behind. It was taking a toll on him. So when he was offered a job with Google in the San Francisco Bay Area, he took it. But at this point, I had stopped going to therapy formally, but I was still applying the theories and the practices that I had been learning in therapy. So if I saw someone attractive on the bus... I would go through the mental exercise of identifying the attributes that I felt were attractive about this person and then connecting them to some sort of childhood trauma. So for example, if I remember seeing someone I thought was hot on the subway or something, right? I'd have to recall that person, remember what it was that I was drawn to. So let's say, I don't know, he had these really lovely hands, let's say, as he was you know, reading a book. And I would then have to stand in front of this person in my group and 
recall the memory of this person, talk about this person's hands, and start to speculate about what it was about this attraction that what 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 did these hands represent about some some aspect of my past? So maybe it was because I don't know, I was punched in the face by someone who had really nice hands, right? And and so then I'd have to through making that link, begin to identify, wow, I'm not actually drawn to that person's hands. I'm actually trying to work through a trauma of being punched, if that makes sense, right? And so so I was doing all this almost intuitively by this point, because I developed the tools through therapy to go through the world, looking at my attraction and trying to deconstruct it in real time like this every single day. And- Which is so traumatizing. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> It, it, it's, I'm still working through it. It's, it's a really, it really kind of encourages a person to really disassociate from their emotional and biological reality in many ways. It, it's sort of, you know, trying to. Well, to observe something, the beauty of someone's hand and to have to attach it to trauma and to move through the world that way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not only traumatic or damaging because it sort of introduces this other layer in front of one's experience in the world, but it takes a lot of mental energy. And I think I hit a wall when I was in San Francisco and I was coming home to my empty apartment and I was just feeling so, so depressed. And I was feeling so exhausted mentally and emotionally because I was doing all of this quote unquote work to try to heal myself and fix myself and it wasn't working. And I think for a lot of people who've been through these kinds of conversion therapy, what ends up happening is the, the thing that fuels someone to seek out this kind of counseling and therapy to begin with is shame, right? And so what ends up happening is that there ends up being a lot of shame that stacks. So there's the shame that I felt for being different for being gay or same-sex attracted. Two, there's the shame that I mentioned earlier around feeling I am so fucked because like I have all these horrible things that have happened to me that I may not even be aware of that I need to work on and work through and, and uncover. And then thirdly, there's the shame that comes from feeling like a complete colossal failure because I'm not actually changing my sexual orientation. Like I'm not noticing a change here. And it made me feel like, wow, I must be so, so damaged, so extra damaged that even this work that I've been putting in isn't bearing any kind of fruit. And so, so that all of that shame really stacks that kind of triple decker. And that is really where I found myself at my lowest is I was incredibly depressed and really felt like I had no future. I had no future. Like everything was so gated behind this part of me going away and quote unquote being fixed and it wasn't happening. And so I, I really didn't have a, a life to look forward to. And so it was really there that I was at my darkest. And, and I'd say it was there that some part of me that maybe that survival instinct began to kick in and it came in the form of a really quiet voice. And that voice basically said, what if the voice said, what if your life could be different? What if this wasn't something that 
you needed to change or fix? What if you end up being on your deathbed and are going to be wondering, what if, like, what if, what if I had maybe embraced this part of me? Like it was a really scary and scandalous thought because, you know, in, in the way that I saw myself as well as theologically and religiously, it was, it sort of went against everything that I believed in, right. To be able to entertain this possibility of embracing this part of me and potentially even exploring that with someone like that was really, 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 really scary. But it was nonetheless a voice that was there that I took note of. And that began another another decade in a way of unpacking and undoing some of this some of this damage. Hey there, listeners. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Simon Fung. This is our last season of All the Wiser. We have loved sharing these stories with you over the past five years, and we have a little ask. We would love to know how you have been impacted, touched, or changed by the guests and stories and lessons on this podcast. Here's how you can help. We've set up a number at 310-243-6364 for you to call in and tell us about your favorite episode or how you've been moved, changed, touched, inspired by this show. It would mean so much to me and our team if you'd make the time to call in and share your stories. The number's in the show notes and on our Instagram bio at All The Wiser Podcast. And don't worry, when you call the number, you will hear my voice with some short and sweet instructions on what to leave. Thank you for being a part of the All the Wiser family. And now back to my conversation with Simon Fung. I want to take you to a moment which um, really led us to this conversation today. Yeah. Podcasting. <laughs> when do you learn about Alana Chen and what can you tell me about that day? Yeah. So it was 2019 and I was in a coffee shop and I had been living in San Francisco at this point. And I remember scrolling through my phone and coming across this news article about a young woman who had gone missing and had died by suicide, who everyone was shocked about, obviously, because of how young she was. She died at 24. But in particular, she was this person of deep faith. She had wanted to become a nun since she was a young teenager. And according to the reports, she had been through some form of conversion therapy as well. And it was something that she had kept from her family. And I was really, really spooked when I read this because it felt like it had a lot of parallels with my own life. And reading between the lines, I started to intuit that Alana Chen, this young woman, her community resembled a lot of my own community, my own Catholic community. And, and the, the the kind of place, even though she was in Boulder, Colorado, I was in New York and San Francisco, there were so many aspects about her story that just felt like were really similar and parallel. And so I ended up doing a little bit more research, 
found her family on Facebook, um, read some of the posts that her mother had written, and really was just incredibly scared. And, and I don't know how to describe it. It was like a feeling of being frozen. And I was, you know, crying, uh, just weeping, sobbing in the corner of this coffee shop. And I just, I was there for the whole afternoon and I was glued to my screen trying to read anything I could find about her. And, and that really stuck with me. And, and when I found her mother on Facebook, I ended up deciding to write her an email. So I drafted this email a short while after that point. And it was one where I really shared my own experiences, told her things that I didn't talk to very many people about, about my history with conversion therapy, my own desires to become a priest and to have that kind of vocation. And I told her, hey, you know, if, if you ever need to talk or want to talk to anybody, please feel free to reach out. And I just want to offer you my condolences and, and support and didn't expect any reply at all. You know, obviously I'm sure somebody who's in that situation is grieving and is, you know, this is probably the last thing they want to hear or, or who knows, right? And so I didn't expect any kind of response. And a few months later, she did get back to me and we got on a phone call for the first time. And it was then that I began to began to learn more about Alana Chen, about this young woman, her daughter, who her mother had so many questions about. And um, before she died, her mother had discovered Alana had been keeping journals all throughout her teenage years. And she had been going through them and was reading and discovering things about her daughter that she really found puzzling and, and couldn't quite make sense of. And we ended up continuing this kind of texting and phone call relationship for about a year and a half where, you know, she'd text me her questions or her, her grief and I would be supportive and, and we would, you know, hop on calls periodically. And that was that was kind of the way in which our relationship and, and friendship really kind of began to develop. But I, we had never met in person. It was all, you know, virtual. Then the pandemic hit and it was a lot of, a lot of, um, additional grief for everyone, I'm sure. But I ended up post-pandemic wanting to take a little bit of a break. I kind of burnt out from my job and I ended up deciding to leave my work and take a few months off. And it's it was in that period two years ago where I was lying awake in bed and it was 2 a.m. and I couldn't sleep because Alana's story kept on haunting me. Like it felt like, it felt like there was something about the story about this young woman who I wanted to know more about. And the thought came to maybe document some of that journey um, and to do that in audio. And so the idea for doing a kind of documentation of this journey to learn more about Alana began to take shape. And I ended up pitching the idea to, to her family, to her mother and sister and their attorney. And they were all very supportive. And they said, we are not in a, an emotional place to do this kind of, you know, investigation or, or look back, but you are, you know, and you might be able to talk to people that we, we don't feel ready to talk to, or yeah, that was the beginnings of working with the family to, to learn more about Alana. And over the course of the next two years, I ended up working on this documentary memoir. It really began as a, story to understand what happened to Alana Chen, but in the process of making it, it also became 
the story of me learning about what happened to me. Alana's mom, Joyce, whose um, love and voice and grief is such a big part of Dear Alana and the podcast, I'd love to hear about the first time you met Joyce and also what your your vision and your intention was. Yeah, I when I proposed the idea of a podcast to the family, I think the idea was to tell Alana's story and to really talk to the people that knew her best to try to piece together what her life was like, to try to piece together what kinds of conflicts she might've been up against and to try to understand really how a vibrant young person who was, who was this kind of a plus student who was sporty and athletic. She was an ultimate Frisbee champ. She loved fashion and making her own clothing. And she was this incredibly service oriented and precocious young person who served the homeless under the bridge in, in Boulder, who, you know, really took it upon herself to try to help. You know, she had just, just had, had this love for people who are in those situations and, and was just kind of this good kid. And how does somebody like that end up in a place where she ends up taking her life? But I think more than anything, my own desire to want to document this was I really wanted to make something that would be able to speak to someone like Alana or someone like myself like a decade ago, right? Who was in the midst of trying to grapple with this part of themselves that they were trying to change, you know, and that they felt like was on a collision course with their their destiny, right? With their vocation, with their purpose. And I really wanted to create something that could speak to someone who was in that place of fear and in that place of isolation and in that place where they felt like they were being misunderstood by everybody on, on every side. And that was kind of the the spirit of how I wanted to approach this project. And you discovered so much and uncovered through Alana's voice, through her, through her diary and through her own words, so much about her journey. And as you said, this was a your own journey, right? And and yeah. finding yourself in her story. Is there something that's the most profound that you discovered about Alana or discovered about yourself in the process? I would say that in making this project, I was taken to places that I just didn't expect to go to. I, I thought that I thought that this part of my life, my twenties, was something that was kind of behind me that I certainly didn't lead with or, or talk to very many people about. But in making this project, I really had to revisit a lot of those experiences and especially those parts around really understanding and, and identifying the role of shame and the ways in which the kinds of counsel and therapy I received really played into that. And, and I'm not going to lie, it was really, really, really hard. It, it I, I went through periods where I had panic attacks where for the first time in my life, which I just never thought was a thing for me. And I, I, and I just didn't understand why, but I was 
re-listening to a lot of the theorists of conversion therapy and a lot of the talks, a lot of the messages that Alana and I received. And I was like, wow, this is, this is kind of really doing a number on me. And, and I think a lot of it has to do with decoupling or, or untangling the degree to which something that I really felt was saving me and, and helping me in hindsight was recognizing that it was harming me. And, and that is hard to also like accept in myself, right? Because I, I, I think of myself as a pretty rational, smart person, right? And I think Alana did too. She writes about how she chose this. She had chosen this kind of therapy. She had chosen this kind of counsel for herself. And and I I think just realizing that that was something that had happened was starting to come out physically in me as well. But I'd say the biggest thing that I was able to... I mean, so many things. This has been an incredibly encompassing journey in, in, in the last two years to revisit all of these things and to learn about Alana's life. But oftentimes when we see something that's happening to someone else, we can usually see it a little bit more clearly for what it is than when it's happening to ourselves. And I think that's what was going on with Alana. It was I was learning about her life and looking and reading through some of her writings, well, all of her writings, I, I was able to, to have a lot of compassion for this young person, right? To have a lot of admiration for her and to see how much her her desire to belong really drove her to these lengths and to see that for as something good, as something that spoke to this deep part of her that wanted to be loved and accepted, right? It, it was a really beautiful developing of, in a way, a, a kind of relationship with Alana, even though I'd never met her in real life, right? And what was going on, I think, in the process of me doing this was inadvertently, I was beginning to look at myself differently. I was beginning to see, wow, we're so similar in some of these ways. And this part of me that I still wrestle with, that I still have some degree of shame about, right? I can see in her like, wow, she had nothing to be ashamed of. You know, she was so amazing. And if I can see that about her, I can begin to start to see that about myself. And I think that's that was the gift that Alana gave me and captivating me about her life and and kind of bringing me on this journey. There's a million acts of courage in you emailing her family, you moving to Colorado, um, reaching out and facing some of the people in the church who play a part in Alana's story and Alana's death. But your entire life had been hiding this thing that you were so deeply ashamed of. And the courage in the process of sharing Alana's story required you to share your own. How was that experience, you know, the day you hit publish and share all of it, your faith, your sexuality, all of that. What was that experience for you? I did not want to be in this podcast. That was never my intention. I I went into this thinking I was going to be this investigator and I was going to be the voice and narrator and I was going to tell Lana's story. But in the process of making it, we had recorded and edited three episodes and we're getting listener feedback in, in, 
in order to continue writing the rest of the season. And the consistent feedback was, who is Simon? Like, why should we trust him? What are his stakes? What gives him the qualifications to talk about any of this? And it became clear that my presence in the story was going to have to be upped. And that was something that I kind of reluctantly backed into. But I think what's interesting about the last two years is that it, it has been a gradual, progressive backing into you know, self-disclosure, right? Something that, like you had said, I, I had spent so much of my life hiding and trying to conceal this part of me. You know, none of my friends, very few of my friends, but none of my coworkers, you know, knew about any of this part of my life. No one knew I'd want to be a priest. You know, there were all these secrets that I'd been keeping from people in my life and even people in my family. And, but because I was so moved and in a way, um, compelled to tell Alana's story and to tell it well. It was like, well, in the service of doing that, I guess, I guess I'll end up sharing some of my own life. And in a way, the disclosures that I made in making this podcast, which were done with a very small room of myself and really two other people, felt very safe. It felt very much like, well, we're, we're obsessed with getting the details right and getting the story right and nailing that and telling it well. Great, great, great. Hitting send was not something I ever really prepared mentally for because it just felt like there was so much to get through, so many mountains to climb before that point. And when it actually happened, I don't think I was ready for it. Um, Dear Alana, the podcast hit number one on Apple Podcasts within its first week. In its first month, it had a million downloads. And right now it's made it onto Apple's year-end list for their the top podcast they love for the year, one of 12 for 2023. And it has had this incredible reach that I I certainly hoped for, but I honestly didn't expect. I didn't think that this was going to be that big. And I've had people reach out to me, many, many people, I'm still getting through the messages in my inbox. And honestly, it feels still really, really strange. I feel there are some days where I wake up and I'm like, can I undo this? Like, like I feel really naked right now. And there are people reaching out to me, people who I know from my past, you know, who are wanting to talk. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, I don't, I don't know if I'm ready for this. And, and it just, it's been a lot. It's been a lot the last few months. And so I am still wrestling with this new normal, but but again, I, I always return to that original intentionality behind it, which was, I really want to reach other Alanas. There are Simons out there who might want to hear something, some part of their own story. And what's ended up happening is that people who don't share our experiences or who haven't gone through conversion therapy are resonating with the story because it is, in many ways, a coming-of-age story. It's a story about the lengths that we'll all go to to find belonging, right? The, the sacrifices that we might make and the costs to ourselves that we might take in order to to fit in, in order to belong. And and I think that's something that is pretty universal. Where do you stand in your faith today and your relationship with God and your relationship with the Catholic Church? I'd say like the last decade and especially the last two and making 
dear Alana, my faith has gone through a lot of real roller coaster emotions and like any relationship, right? Like there are just ups and downs. There've been a lot of downs. Um, I'm not going to lie, right? It's It's been really rocky to have this kind of construct that I was so committed to around what it meant to be a good Catholic. And when this part of me wouldn't go away, when this thing that was this huge obstacle was not going to resolve itself in the way that was promised, when when that didn't happen, it really called into question a lot of what I had believed. For example, like I, so much of the shame I carried around being gay had to do with a lot of stereotypes that I had been given about what gay people were like and what kinds of miserable lives they were leading. And and it wasn't until I started meeting more gay people, ironically, at a Catholic church near where I was living in San Francisco, that I began to realize that, oh my God, they were wrong about that too. Like these people are living beautiful, full lives. Like this is not what I thought it was. And my life doesn't necessarily need to look like a death sentence. And so and so like I think that began the process of really starting to reconstruct and also deconstruct some of the, the parts of my faith that I had been taught were sort of all or nothing propositions, right? And so that has been a journey. And, and I'm not going to lie, it's been really, really rough. It's been hard to come to grips with even admitting the, the ways in which I had been hurt and harmed is not something that was easy for me. I don't like to think of myself as a victim or I don't like to think of myself that way and and beginning to recognize some of the harm, some of the ways in which my own ideas about myself were distorted was, was a lot of work and is a lot of work. I think what's been happening in the last few years is I've been learning to return to in many ways that simpler version of faith that I think I had as a child. Um, it's so interesting. Again, the process of making this show illuminated a lot of things for me. And I see, for example, in Alana's story, a similar trajectory where she had such a simple and pure faith that in, you know, as she grew up kind of got crowded out by a lot of other ideas. But for me, it's been returning to that. It's been returning to that relationship in its sort of original form. And working through that with God in a very honest and a more honest way than ever before, because now I don't feel like I need to hide anything. I don't feel like I need to be this other person in order to serve God, if that makes sense. And for me, faith is, it's a big topic, but it, it looks a lot more mysterious. It looks a lot more like paradox embracing that. It looks a lot more like embracing the mystery of things, the strangeness of life. It's a different place altogether than I could have imagined. And and I think it looks a lot like following the part of me that wants to continue to honor the divine in, in, in telling stories and in making art. I think that's a part of me that maybe in a way is the common through line. And as much as I wanted to serve God in this very explicit way as a priest, I think ultimately what I have always wanted is to follow the beauty, follow the music, you know, and to, and to be able to share that with other people. I think your art, your podcast is an extraordinary act of divine service. Mm. Far, far reaching millions of people. Mm. Thank you. I know 
you know, you said something beautiful that you you pray to Alana. Obviously, she's a part of you and a part of your life now. And you also had this realization that all of these decades of praying to God, that the reason the prayers were never answered is because God cannot fix what is not broken, which was one of my favorite lines in your podcast. <laughs> what do you want people to take away from your story, Simon? Oh, gosh, there's so many things. I, I, I feel like I hope that people can find pieces of themselves in Alana and in myself through hearing our stories. I hope that people can begin to have a little bit of compassion for their own selves, for the parts of them that they may not feel like they can accept, you know, for the parts of them that they feel they feel are shameful. And that that is something that is a journey and is a process. And for some people, it may not be something that they can resolve in this lifetime, right? And at the same time, it is something that we all share. We all share parts of ourselves that are dark and scary and shameful, and that there are ways in which we can come to terms with that and to begin to love ourselves a little bit more. Simon, thank you for your time. You're brilliant, by the way. Uh, brilliant and brave. And thank you for your work on Dear Alana. I'm really excited for everyone to listen. This is the best theme song of a podcast. And I don't know how long I can't get it out of my mind. I will follow you. Thank you so much, Kimmy. You can find the Dear Alana podcast at the link in our show notes or on your favorite podcast platform. And if you or someone you love are in need of help, there are many resources available. To name just a few, you can contact the Crisis Text Line. You simply text the word HOME to 741741. Or you can contact the LGBT National Hotline for free, confidential support at 888-843-4564. You can find a list of these and more resources at alanafaithchen.org backslash help. As of the airing of this episode, 22 states have passed legislation to protect LGBTQ youth from conversion therapy practices. In more states have legislation pending. Organizations like the Trevor Project and Born Perfect are at the forefront of the fight to end conversion therapy. Want to know where your state stands? You can find out by going to lgbtmap.org. That's lgbtmap.org. This podcast is produced by Erica Gerard of Podkit Productions. And I'm Tara Daigle, All the Wiser's associate producer coming to you from Denver, Colorado. Our editor and composer and sound designer is John LaSala. And of course, your host was Kimmy Culp. So until next time, take care of yourself and each other.
And of course, your host was Kimmy Culp. That didn't sound natural. 